we got your cat in a in a cage, and we got the picture. And wife and I both think that's your cat. Wild as can be in this cage. But is it Kate's cat? Or is it another imposter, like the last time she got a call from the man with the cage? This week on Interstates, Chapter 4 of The Third Time Rita Left. But first, comedian Mohanad El Sheikhi talks with Avi Forrest about how being funny in real life and on stage are not the same thing. That's coming up right after this. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This is The Interstate Show. I'm Avraham Forrest, and tonight's guest is comedian Mohanad El Sheikhi, with musical guests from Universal Production. Avi, U- what are you doing? Nothing. Nothing. Just recording recording audio for the comedian story, the, the intro for the comedian story. Uh, okay, cool. Go ahead. Tonight on the Interstate Show, I'm Avraham Forrest, and our first guest is Mohanad El Sheikhi. He's had his own TED Talk. He's been on Comedy Central and some smaller shows like Conan, but now he's finally here. So please welcome to the stage Mohanad El Sheikhi. Especially in the entertainment industry, people love to just like give you a label and just be like, be this guy. Like you're like, you're the trauma guy, you're like what, whatever guy, you're like the immigrant guy, uh, because it's easier for them to package it and sell it as a product, because that's how they see you. It's just, you're just a product. Hey there, and welcome to The Comedians, a series about comedians. This time we're talking about Conan, trauma, and what it's like making jokes when you're happy. Please welcome making his television debut with us this evening, the very funny Mohanad El Sheikhi. What was it like on Conan? Oh, that was that was fantastic. Uh, I mean, I would say like the first thirty seconds were kind of like you know I wasn't sure yet because you. Before you get your first laugh, you're not sure how that is going to go because it's a different setup. You have, like, five cameras, like, just pointed at you. You have, like, an audience at 4 p.m. You have Conan and Andy just, like, sitting, like, not too far from you. So it's kind of like, you know, that's not my everyday setup when I'm doing stand-up. And I also have five minutes. And it's TV, so I can't really, like, riff. I can't, like, really, like, go back and, like, say something again. But overall, I loved it. I loved it so much. I thought it went way way better than I expected it to be. And also, like, you know, Conan and the staff and everyone was, like, very, like, nice and supportive. And, like, you know, they let you know what to do uh, beforehand and where to look and all of that stuff. And they're like, hey, we'll, you know, this is going to go great. So yeah, I felt like I, I felt like I was very like well prepared for it. Even though the process of itself of getting on Conan took so long. I think it took like over a year of just like back and forth and just like talking and like working on like the set and like arranging stuff and like maybe sometimes I'm like, oh I have this joke, new joke that I wanna try instead of this one. Growing up, or just in your life in general, who were your influences? Um, who were your comedic influences? Comedic influences. I mean, honestly, like I when I first started like 
tuning into comedy. I didn't even watch it. I remember like my my friend gave me like a flash drive that had like MP3 like uh, recordings on it. So that some of the comedians I don't even remember who they are. I just remember just like listening to them and just liking the form of stand up and and all of that stuff. I remember like one of the first people I seen is just like Russell Peters for example just because he had like so many like videos on YouTube and 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 stuff. I I mean a lot of the people I wouldn't call them like influences you just like were like my intro to knowing what stand up is. And I've watched like some like deaf comedy jam and all of that and uh, just to know what, you know, what the form was. And you know, I yeah, I I can't like say that I have like specific people I can name in my mind about like who are the influences just the collective in general so what what is your sort of um vibe as a canadian <laughs> my vibe is that i'm just very dry on stage i'm originally from uh, libya which is a place that shows up if you google it uh, <laughs> and you know i'm i'm very dry i'm very like kind of like i wouldn't call it sarcastic but kind of like that way and i love doing a lot of like building throughout my set like you know just so i can like do callbacks and and, and all of that stuff and i want to call it like observational humor though even though like it is in a sense and i was driving my car and i got stopped at a checkpoint and one thing you need to know about libya back then that was mostly controlled by like religious like extremist militias and then they searched my car up and down and then one of them looked at me and he was like well who the fuck are you but yeah, I mean, once I'm on stage, I'm like, I just try to be like as confident as I could be. And what are you doing here? And I was like, well, to be fair, I do ask myself the same question every morning. <laughs> so I get it, bro. And it's very intellectual. It's very political, which is, um, I mean, I wouldn't say it's a rarity, but I would say it takes some finesse to pull off. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, because I mean, it's it's easy when I am in like New York, L.A. or like even Bloomington, you know, because uh, you do have a lot of people like who already agree with you. So but sometimes I go to part of the country like I'm in North Carolina. I'm like whatever. And it's it's you are not guaranteed to have a lot of people like who politically align with you or not as progressive as you are and all of that stuff. So I want to think, say it takes convincing because it's not really, I'm not trying to convince them of anything, but it takes, you know, like a different like arrangement and maybe like starting like, you know, not going on like all heavy at first and just kind of like taking them in like slowly. Have you guys seen opinions lately? Yeah, they're really bad. Uh, and I also have opinions, but they're like good. So even when you are not, you're saying stuff that they maybe don't agree with in their everyday lives, it's still like, will listen and think it's funny and just, like, enjoy it. When you're performing, would you say that you're a different person? Yes. Yeah, I mean, once I'm, once I'm on stage, I am... Uh, it doesn't matter what's happening in my life at that moment. You know, like, literally the worst thing could happen an hour before the show, and then I can go on stage and just, like, get into the mindset and everything else, you know, I just put on the side. And I'm also, like, you know... I know what I'm doing on stage. I'm very confident on stage. I have confidence on stage that I don't, I don't have in my everyday life. Because like, I know exactly what I have to offer and I know exactly how things will work. So it's like very like, it's 90% planned, which I like planning and I like knowing where I'm taking stuff. So yeah, I feel like I'm on, on stage, I'm like a whole different person. Like sometimes I wish I am that person who's on stage Always, because that would make my life so much easier. Offset. Would you say people um, think you're a funny person? I hope they do. Because I am, I am on stage how I am off stage. So I put my opinion out there and I believed in everything I said until that guy, until that guy, uh, Kevin, replied to me. Do you guys know Kevin? From social media? You know, I talk the same way, I communicate the same way. So I believe that people think that. And I mean, like, I mean, that's the reason I started doing comedy is because people kept telling me that I should do this on stage, whatever it is that I am doing in conversation. Yeah, he's there. Uh, yeah, Kevin replied to me, and this is what Kevin said. His reply was amazing, it was like poetry. Uh, he replied and said, You've 
African Muslim, I eat bacon 24-7. And I was like, wow, what a hateful haiku. That's so cool. Why do you think people kept saying you should do comedy? I mean, I, I, I don't know. Like, I feel like a lot of people do get that, though. You know, like someone who's like funny at their like office or something. Like, oh my god, you should do, you should totally do stand-up comedy, even though they shouldn't. I mean, I think people just, yeah, just thought I, I, I had some like had something to say, or like the way I deliver stuff is more like fits within the uh, structure of stand-up comedy because there are so many ways to be funny, but there are very specific ways to be funny in within the stand-up comedy world. I've heard the sentiment that a lot of comedy is based on sort of like bearing yourself to an audience, a lot of like trauma to an audience. Uh, would you yeah. agree with that? Uh, I mean, in a sense, yeah. I mean, some of it is is deeply personal and, and all of that stuff. And I have stuff that are like more like, you know, hard to talk about and all of that stuff. And I have to kind of like figure out how to do it in a way where it doesn't feel like... And, and I mean, also like, you know, it's it's the... It's a cliche of like uh, comedy plus time. When something like bad happens, I, I try not to talk about it on stage immediately because it's not. There are so many like emotions still attached to it, so you're not far enough from it to talk about it yet. But I, I'd also say that I have never written better jokes than when I was just happy. Because I feel like the uh, stigma of stand-up, is, especially like with newer comics and, and 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 all of that, is that somehow you have to be like miserable and you have to have like you know you're really going through it for the sake of art and like for the sake of just like uh, kind of like this like Van Gogh like syndrome where people just have to feel like they have like to be like this tortured soul in order to make like content. And I'm just like, no, you don't have to be that. You can like be happy and still like make good observations and maybe talk about painful stuff and from the past and all of that but it it doesn't have to come on the expense of your like mental health and just uh and you don't have to feel like you have to keep like suffering and going through it just in like for the sake of content i feel like that's just like something i would love to see uh gone from the stand-up comedy world because it's just not not you know not fun for for anyone involved And I guess with that in mind, what is your process of writing jokes, of making a set? I mean, the initial process is like, you know, so like it's a lot of the, these jokes like really just come up with like conversation with like other like friends and stuff like that. You know, like I would be telling them a story or I'd be telling them like or so, like something would come up in mind and they laugh at it. And I just like just take my phone out and kind of like make a take the notes app on and just like write like write a quick note just kind of like to remind me to think about it more later. So, uh, and then what I do is I don't really like, uh, I'm not a person who like sits down and write or, you know, opens like a notebook and just like start writing and all of that. I don't really know how to do that. And it's not my, something I enjoy. So I, what I do is like, I really just like take like these long, like walks every day in the city. And I just talk to myself out loud where I imagine myself just like being on stage and I just like kind of like perform it that way. So by the time I am on stage, I have performed it enough times that it just doesn't feel like new to me anymore. Usually when I have a bit at first, it's kind of like, it's always like kind of longish. So, you know, it's always like three minutes because you have all of that like extra stuff that you're like not sure if it's funny or not, or like you're not sure how to like get rid of, uh, but you know, I keep like I, I I would do the joke over and over again, and like every time I would like you know change the structure, make it shorter, make it shorter, and, like see what people laugh at, and then eventually I uh, I don't think the a joke really gets to its final form ever until like you tape it for something or like put it on a special. So I always like keep changing stuff, and sometimes you know sometimes you have an idea you really like. And you try it on stage multiple times, and it just doesn't work, even though you think it's funny. But then I just put it on the side, and sometimes a year from 
from when I tried it, I finally figured out how to do it. You know, like I have another joke that just like fits in well with it, or like I have a story that this would be a good tag for. So you know, like I never really like get rid of stuff. I just like put them on the side and eventually find a way to like repurpose them. Like I have jokes from like three years ago that I literally just started doing again now because I figured out how to do them. For those things that are um, are based on sort of those more, more negative experiences, what's it like turning negative material into comedy? Uh, I mean, it feels good just like saying stuff out loud, you know, sharing them with people and like actually like being able to talk. Because like once once it's funny, it's not it doesn't feel scary anymore. It doesn't feel like as bad. It's still bad, but it's not as bad once you can like make fun of it. And I get to a point where, like, I start telling these stories and it feels like I'm telling, I'm talking about, like, another person who's not me. Like, so you feel like you're, like, separate from it somehow. You're, like, just watching from the outside. Um, so it does it does help kind of, like, you know, help you, like, get, get over it. But in the same sense, I would say that, you know, I don't, I don't think of stage as, like, therapy. Because uh, I, I know comedians love saying that comedy is their therapy, and I'm just like, I don't think therapy is therapy, and maybe you should, people should <laughs> do that instead. Because, you know, I'm like, I'm, the audience is there to enjoy their time and have a good time. They probably got babysitters for like the kids and, and all of that stuff, and I'm not gonna just go up and like use them as a way to process my emotions. Uh, so there has to be a balance there, you know, like you, you should be able to talk about whatever you want to talk about, but at the same time, you know, do it in a way that does not make people just, you know, not enjoy it because you clearly not, you know, you haven't processed it on the outside world yet. A lot of your work um, brings up arguably important topics and important perspectives, mm-hmm. and um, and honestly, I would argue that uh, humor can be activism. It's easier to do it within stand-up comedy because it's kind of like packaged in this like jokes and stuff like that. So like people are like more able to listen to them and they can relate to you and 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 all of that stuff. And like humor may, I mean, humor does humanize you more. So. In a sense, yes, it is. It is. It can be like a form of a form of activism. I'm saying, like, but I say at the same point, I'm 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 kind of like in the mindset of like my goal is to make people laugh, to make them enjoy the show, and everything good that comes out of comes out of like on the sides is. I'm glad if a positive change happens, but I can't say that like I sit down and write jokes and be like, oh, this is my. This is what I want to have because you ne- you never control you can never control how people take your material and jokes and like how they understand them and how it resonates with them. Sometimes you have a joke that has like a a really big impact on someone, and sometimes it's just a funny joke that they remember. So you can't really like you know control that. You just hope for the best when you write them. Uh, one last thing, I I I had this really terrible thing happen to me a few months ago. Uh, I was doing comedy in the uh, city of Spokane, Washington. Yeah, one person knows that place. <laughs> the rest of you, you don't need to. It sucks. The worst place on earth. It should be canceled, honestly. More Can recently, you, um, yeah. you shared that experience about like uh, being taken city, off a bus white, by um, Border Patrol. Because why not? Uh, and then, <laughs> after I finished my set, I got on the bus, the Greyhound bus, to go back to, to Portland, where I live. Because I believe that the best art comes from torture, you know? <laughs> and I was on the bus, everything is great. I'm just looking at my phone, just scrolling down. I'm like, oh, I don't wonder what Kevin has been up to lately. <laughs> and then I see people wearing uniforms and they get on the bus and they start asking people questions. Uh, and then one of them looks at me and he's like, oh, you don't look like you're from here. Where are you from? Can we see your papers and everything you have? And let's step outside of the bus. And then I learned that these people were uh, border patrol. And it's obviously very disgusting because they asked me to step outside of the bus based on the way I looked. You know, they looked at me and they were like, this guy looks too handsome to be from Spokane. <laughs> like, like, he has most of his face. Like, 
And they, they looked at my papers and they're like, these papers look fake, they're easily falsified. And I was like, well, these papers have been given to me by you. So maybe do a better job, I don't know. That seems like a you problem at this point. Uh, and then they were like, okay, buddy, uh, one more thing. Uh, are, you, uh, are you from Oregon or Washington? And I was like, I support God. Uh, <laughs> And they were like, what does that mean? I was like, I don't know, man. That's how I talk to militias. And, uh, Are you ever afraid of being pigeonholed as a someone who has had that experience and just and people only want you to talk about that experience? Yeah, of course. I mean, you, you, you always feel that way. You're like, oh, this is the only thing people want to hear about and, and, and all of that stuff. And I get it because it's just like obviously a very like big event and, and all of that and sometimes sometimes people this is how people got to know me because this uh, story was like on the news and and all of that stuff but I think what helps me the most is just because I get to do a usually like a full hour of comedy or so I and people come see me so they get to see other stuff as well and uh, that Greyhound story for example like is like a four or five minutes out of like a 60 minute set So uh, they get to see the other aspects of me. And like sometimes like I don't even talk about myself. I just like have like ob- like just silly observations about like other stuff that truly does not, you know, is not just just stuff that I think are funny. So I think it's just it kind of gives people like more of a way to see you as a um as a person, like who has, like you know, contains, like you know, contains, you know, multitudes and like is multifaceted and all of that stuff, and and like more like them uh, than anything, and as as just like one story that you have. But yeah, it's you know, it's always a fear, and 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 especially in the entertainment industry, people love to just like give you a label and just be like, be this guy, like you're like you're the trauma guy, you're like what whatever guy, you're like the immigrant guy. Uh, because it's easier for them to package it and sell it as a product because that's how they see you. It's just, you're just a product. I think just because of how social media is now and like how there are so many ways to communicate with the audiences, there is more freedom now to uh, package yourself the way you want it, which is, you know, just as a person or whatever you want it to be. Seeing... um people of color and immigrants as not just their trauma and just this one thing that happened and seeing them fully and seeing like that they're just people they're not like like you said they're not machines for money they're not like like vehicles for traumatic stories they are people exactly yeah absolutely i mean yeah that's the that's the thing is and i mean that's what one thing that stand-up allows me to do it it kind of like allows me to do like not just tell my story but like talk about myself and like my personal life and all of that stuff but on my own terms and not having to do it through the way like uh people want me to do you know Yeah, yeah, and um, I am not um, an immigrant nor a person of color. I, I am trans, and I and I sort of mm-hmm. identify with this concept of like. Yeah. I, I would feel weird if I was reduced to like my traumatic memories because I think like trans like transness is reduced to like the dysphoria yeah. and and yeah, and th- there is joy within it, and I'm really just a person. Um, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You just wanna. You just want people to be people, and that's the that's the that's the whole of it you know like whether you like especially if you're like someone who's like you know like supportive of like trans issues or like you are an ally to people of color and all of that stuff it shouldn't come on the expense of them having to relive like the trauma over and over again just to prove that they are uh people you know uh because people in general just deserve to be happy and just live their normal lives without like being reminded that they're like you know like different or need to do more work to be accepted or uh, or any of that stuff what are you afraid of most as a comedian i mean i mean the always the fear is always like you know like uh not connecting with the audience and like bombing and 
like i don't care if a joke bombs like one joke but like if the whole set is not going your way and you have to be up there for an hour that is not great and also like you know it's not a fear this is more of an inconvenience but you know like you travel all the way to the city or something but you do not get the turnout that you expected so you're like you know you have this really great hour and maybe like 15 people show up out of like 100 or something and you're like well i mean it is what it is and you just gotta push through it and always like especially like i guess that's a fear like an irrational one when you like have a writer's block and you're like i don't think i can like come up with jokes anymore that's it for me what is something you haven't been able to achieve I mean, I wouldn't say not able. I'm just like, it's just a lot of these stuff just take time. Like, I would love to have my my own TV show, you know, uh, which is something I've been, like, working on and all of that stuff. It's just that stuff like that takes so long, and they take it's such a long process. So I wouldn't say, like, I wasn't able to achieve. It's more like I just wish it can be achieved quicker. And in my mind, I have a lot of, like, goals and I have clear goals and and all of that stuff and I have confidence enough in myself that I know that they will happen eventually it's a matter of like uh, when and not if I I just hate uh, having to wait for too long what is something that you want people to know about you I mean I I, I don't know if it's something I need people to know about me but it's mostly like has to do with comedians in general is like just because you see someone on stage or you hear them on a podcast or something and you know so much about them, you shouldn't assume that you know them, I guess. Because sometimes like I would get like DMs on, on Instagram or whatever and people like just because they hear you and they listen to you and stuff, they get too familiar, they get too comfortable. And it's like, uh, sorry, you don't know me that way. So sometimes like it's kind of like weird when when people like try to like, you know... Uh, because I'm like, yeah, I'm like, you know me, but maybe I don't know you in, in that sense. But if there's anything I want people to know about me, honestly, is that I have two cats and I love them so much. If I am to be pigeonholed into any label, is that I would be that I love my cats because I do not mind that. What are your cats' names? Uh, their names are uh, Tuna. Their name are Una and Toonie. Together, we I call them Tuna. Uh, and they're three years old, and I love them so much. I think that's going to be the focal point of this interview, honestly. There'll be some minor notes. I, I would work. not mind it. I literally would not mind it if you even put their name on the headline and not my name. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, the show is called Interstates, but it's going to be called The Tuna Show, like from now on. Perfect. Amazing. Yes, I love that. Thank you so much. Uh, of course. That's all I have for today. It was amazing meeting with you. I think your work is just so essential, and I love your comedy. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Comedian Mohanad El Sheikhi talking with Avi Forrest, who is not the host of this show, at least not yet. Mohanad came to Bloomington as part of the Limestone Comedy Festival in June. Okay, we have the last chapter of our missing cat story soon, but first a break and a quick look back at a recent episode. Stick around. Interstate's Alex Chambers. The last chapter of our missing cat story is called Rita's Village, and a lot of the story has been about people coming together to save a cat. So, before we conclude Rita's story, I want to remind you about an episode from a couple months ago that was also about community in, in a different way. Kara Schmidt and Andy Gerber live in an old tomato products factory building in Paoli, Indiana. They've turned the place into a community center. They run a festival, Paoli Fest. They teach yoga classes, make and sell bagels, host lecture series. The building's become a kind of community hub. Before that, they'd been living in Chicago. They'd thought they could build a community there, but it was harder than they expected. They had a place in Goshen, Indiana, and they were trying to figure out what to do next. And then... My sister died, Kara's dad was dying, lots of things were shifting. We sold our house in Goshen and bought this place all within like two months. The Eubanks 
bought this place in maybe the late 60s. Yeah. And when they bought it, the building didn't have floors. There was no roof. There were probably no windows because of the fire that happened in like the 40s. This was the warehouse for the tomato factory. And there were other buildings, structures that were actually the cannery that got so destroyed in the fire that those buildings got demolished eventually. But this one was left standing enough, but really didn't have, like it didn't have floors, it didn't have a roof. So the Eubanks bought it to put in a small furniture factory. They're the ones who like saved the building really and turned it into, I think they're, didn't they build the front? Yeah, so didn't they, yeah, so that, didn't they build the front? Yeah, on this big patio out front, they, had, they built a structure that was like their offices and maybe bathrooms and things. And then the rest of the, ma the main part of the building was the factory and they put like in a little elevator so they could move things. Yeah. The very end of them owning it, I was a little kid and I remember my dad. Yeah. Because these are my dad's cousins. Yeah. My dad tells the story, I've told you this, yeah. about how they always would come up and walk the railroad tracks and there would be little cactuses from where the railroad had gone out west and come back. There were cactus growing in the railroads there when the railroad was still running, which I vague, I, is it crazy to think we have vague memories of the railroad or is that long gone? No, I kind of do too. But I don't know if I'm just thinking I remember I, that. I that or was commissioned in the 80s. Yeah. So, and then, but my dad would come up here when he was young and he remembers there being little cactus from when they'd go out west and come back. And I, even if it's not true, I like that story. So, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it was woodworking. I just remember lots of wood smells that when they had it. But they didn't, I don't know who had it after that, or nobody had it. I don't know either. At some point after the Eubanks, somebody bought it and made it a pallet factory. I think that's the Lowe's. Yeah. There's been a haunted house here like in around 94 after I had gone. And then besides that, it was just used kind of as storage. We bought it from a guy named Willie Sprinkle. He's not a native to Paoli. Also owned the, the house that burned seven years ago. It was our first winter here. So yeah, yeah, I know. I remember watching that fire. Not sure where it was, and kept telling Jeremy, "You're gonna have to go. You have to get in your car and drive and see if Kara's house is on fire." He's like, "It's not her house." Of course, he was right again. Yeah. That was Andy Gerber, Kara Schmidt, and Heather Nichols in our postcard from Paoli from early June. You can hear the whole thing on the Interstate's podcast feed, where, if you're into it, you can also rate and share the show. In the meantime, we're going to take another break and then get back to our cat. Welcome back to Interstate's. I'm Alex Chambers. It's time for the last chapter of our missing cat story. If you've missed any of the previous chapters, feel free to turn off the radio or stop the podcast and go into our podcast feed. You can find all four of the chapters on their own, separate from the scintillating but maybe distracting parts of full Interstates episodes. But maybe you have heard those and you're ready for the conclusion? Well, here it is. Rita ran away in September. October came and went. Kate missed her so much on Halloween that she carved Rita's image into a pumpkin. What was amazing is that it really did look like her. Like, it captured something about her face. And I had posted that on Facebook, and somebody said something like, oh, it's a beacon to Rita calling her home, you know. <laughs> but she didn't come home. 
November rolled on, Trump became president-elect, the weather got colder, and still Kate wandered through fields and neighborhoods trying to find her cat. All that wandering gave her time to think. She thought about cats and survival, about presidential politics, and about race and privilege. And the ability to kind of roam around in people's spaces, you know, private spaces, and not be a threat. That was something that I feel like I thought about a lot when I was out there walking around by myself. I also thought about the vulnerability that I had just as a woman wandering out around alone and the fear of male violence that is always present when you're a woman and you're out alone after dark. But that wasn't as strong for me. I I didn't feel it that much. Mostly I felt safe and protected. And so that was a real, uh, it was kind of a physical revelation. It was something that I always, that I already knew on an intellectual level, but like being out there doing this thing that I really felt like I needed to do. And that if I wasn't a middle-class white woman approaching 50, that, (laughs) you know, I might have seemed more threatening and I might not have actually been able to do this thing that I wanted to do. My freedom to do that would have been limited. My freedom to approach people and have them respond to me kindly. As we've discussed before, how we appear in the world affects how people react to us, whether it's age, gender, or race, or just the fact that we're unusually beautiful, as you might remember is the case for Rita. People kept saying, that is such a beautiful cat. That may be why people kept going out of their way to help, calling out Rita's name in the middle of the night, burying dead cats, and then thinking, oh, maybe that was Rita. Maybe Kate should come dig it up. There were a lot of good intentions out there, but you know what they say about good intentions. The road to hell is paved with missing cats. The only good thing about going down that road is that the destination would have been warmer than winter in Bloomington. And if you're wondering what my point is, it's that at this point in the story, it's December. And if Rita survived this long, it's going to be harder in the next few months. Kate needs to find her soon. When you've been searching for a cat for months, and you get a call from a man with a horse who says he's seen your cat in his barn, and that barn is not too far from the last place you saw your cat. I could picture her traveling that distance. And you're standing in line at the bank with your husband and son when you get that call. You leave that line. You get in your car, and you drive over to see the man with the horse. He had a field behind his house, but then there was also a neighborhood right there. And so we looked around in that neighborhood and we saw this cat. And at first we thought it was her and we went up to her and it was not her. It was a long haired calico, very friendly. We pet her and stuff. And and we were like, oh, that's probably the cat he saw. And he thought it was her. At least this imposter was alive. They told the man they'd seen her in the neighborhood, and it wasn't Rita. And he said, I don't think that's the cat I saw. And we didn't really believe him. We just felt like he just wants to help, and, you know, he, he means well, but he doesn't know what our cat looks like. He doesn't know how beautiful she is, is what Kate means. So they go home. A couple weeks go by. Another call comes in. I saw your cat. I know what she looks like. It was your cat. She has been eating crumbs off of my deck, like cracker crumbs or something, which I thought was a little unlikely. Because you'd only leave cracker crumbs all over your deck if you were trying to attract wild parrots. And you know, there's only one parrot in Bloomington and it goes around by bike, so it's probably not coming to your deck. But Kate realized that if there was a cat eating those crumbs, it was probably a desperate hungry cat because who else would eat crackers off a stranger's deck? Seemed like it might be Rita. So Kate and Carl went out. Turns out it was right near the barn where the man with the horse had seen the cat he thought was Rita, which made them think that they should look in the horse barn again. So they talked to the horseman and he said, yes, he'd seen her since Kate's last visit. Next time I see her, he told them, I'm gonna try to trap her. He's convinced it's her. 
Kate and Carl say, okay, sure, go for it. Thank you. As they turn around to go home, they're thinking, if that really was her, she could be so close right now. She could be behind that house, hiding in that brush, or around the side of that barn. She's on their minds, so they decide to stop in the old neighborhood again, Peppergrass, where the real live Rita escaped from Kate's arms. Occasionally, they'd stop over there, put out food, walk around, call her name. And it was getting cold, like it was December, and it was late December, and Carl, I will just never forget this, like, he put out some food and said, here you go, Rita. And there was a little crack in his voice, like he was about to cry. And I just realized, like, he was just as sad as I was about this. He was just as torn up over it. He missed her. He maybe didn't cry about it and talk about it all the time like I did, but he was, he was feeling it. Even the people we spend more time with than anyone else, sometimes we don't know what's going through their heads. Kate went to bed that night with new insight into her husband, but still no Rita. It was almost winter, and the world looked grim. A man who'd lied and cheated and assaulted his way to fame was about to become the U.S. president. The U.K. had narrowly voted to harden its borders with Brexit. Alton Sterling and Philando Castile's deaths at the hands of police were still echoing alongside a homophobic terrorist attack at the Pulse nightclub in Orlando. In South Dakota, police were using armored personnel carriers, batons, and tasers to push members of the Standing Rock Sioux and other tribes off the land they were trying to protect from the Dakota Access Pipeline. And Rita was still unaccounted for. Probably alive somewhere nearby, but they couldn't be sure. The next day, Kate had a meeting to get to. She knew the people she was meeting with. It was about a project for her son's school. And they knew about the search for Rita, as did everyone Kate knew, and because of Facebook, hundreds of people she didn't know. She was on her way to the meeting, and she got a voicemail. It was the man with the horse barn, and it seemed like really good news. Such good news, we decided to go digging in the archives for this message, and I am happy to say the archives came through. We got your cat in a in a cage, and we got the picture, and wife and I both think that's your cat. Wild as can be in this cage. So give us a ring and tell us when you can come. I'll keep it in the cage till you hear something. He'll keep the cat in the cage till he hears something. Whatever cat it was, it wasn't going anywhere. But still, it felt urgent. Kate told the people at the meeting. They were excited, told her she had to go. She texted Carl. He picked her up and they drove to their son's school. If it really was Rita, Cosmo needed to be a part of this, just like he needed to be there when they dug up the dead cat. You never know when it'll be the one you're looking for. As they drove down there, Kate and Carl made it clear to Cosmo that this, too, might be another false lead. It might not be Rita, they warned him. It wasn't just Cosmo they were preparing for disappointment. So, they arrive at the house. They head up to the porch, each asking themselves if it's their cat in the cage up there, each wondering if it's Rita or another imposter. There have been so many. They see the cat. It's scared. It's howling. And... It is our Rita. They'd found her. She was thin and dirty, but alive. Kate thought it was a dream. She was scared they might not be able to get her home. She might slip away again. One thing was clear. We were not going to get her out of the trap until we got her home, so... The man said they could take the trap with them. So they put her in the car. Got home, brought her inside, brought her in, brought the trap into our bedroom, shut both doors to the bedroom, and then let her out of the trap. I think the first thing she did was run and hide under our bed. But then we like put some food out and we talked to her and eventually she came out and she drank water and ate food and uh, it didn't, she didn't, she wasn't skittish for very long. Like she seemed to recognize that this was home and that we were 
the people she knew and she started purring and she relaxed and and she was okay. When you haven't seen someone for a long time and you get back together, it can be a little nerve-wracking. Will it feel as easy as it did before? Often it does. It didn't take long after Rita got home for her to start doing her signature move again. She just kind of lays down on her back and then really stretches out and then like her feet are going one way and her upper paws are going the other way and she's like in this spinal twist. And it's it's such a perfect like yoga posture. And every time I see her do it, I'm like, oh, she's so smart. I should be doing that, you know? <laughs> And she purrs. In the household, they call that purr Rita's roar. Don't worry, they've checked her out. She's fine. Kate thinks Rita probably didn't do a whole lot of spinal twists in the three months and a week that she was on her own. When you're in a survival state, whether you're a person or you're an animal, you can't, you know, and domesticated animals have this kind of leisure and ability to like relax and like lay down and expose their tummies and do spinal twists and you know like really chill out and I I always felt like when she was out there in the wild she would never have that ability to do that because she was in danger or she felt like she was in danger and so she would she would never be able to lay down and do a spinal twist for instance (laughs) And I think that's also the case for grooming. I think that you can only groom when you're safe enough to groom when you're a cat. Like you have to have a level of protection before you can really like focus on grooming your whole body for however long that takes, you know. (laughs) And so that's why she was dirty when she came back to us because she's a very clean cat. Like both of our cats are always just immaculate and... So sometimes when Carl's like, nowadays when Carl's like scratching her chin, he'll say, remember when your chin was dirty? (laughs) Remember when you had a dirty chin? All right, we've come to the end of our story. And if there's one thing I want you to remember, it's that Rita only made it home because of all the people keeping their eyes open for her even though they didn't need to. And I think there's something in that about the harsh realities of the world we live in. We need each other. If there's a lesson here, it's that it takes a village to catch a cat. And to take care of one in the first place. I mean, Kate said even the carrier, the one that broke and let Rita escape, that came from a family in Cosmo's class. They, uh, don't have it anymore. We destroyed it. And I've always kind of secretly resented them. I guess I want to end with a message for Kate herself, because she's a good friend of mine, too. So, Kate, I know how guilty you felt about Rita's escape, but I think what we can learn from all this is that it takes a village to lose a cat, too. That's it for our story. If you liked it, tell a friend. In the meantime, I have a few friends and colleagues I'd like to thank for helping me put this together. Most of the music in The Third Time Rita Left was composed and recorded by Ramon Monras Sender. Other music came from Backward Collective and Universal Production Music. Editing help came from Molly Weiler, Ross Gay, Essence London, and Kate Young herself. This has been a production of Inner States, a podcast and broadcast from WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana. If you have a story for us or you've got some sound we should hear, let us know at WFIU.org slash innerstates. We've got your quick moment of slow radio coming up, but first, the credits. Inner States is produced and edited by me, Alex Chambers, with support from Violet Barron, Ayabon Binder, Mark Chilla, Avi Forrest, Luann Johnson, Sam Schemenauer, Peyton Whaley, and Kate Young. Our executive producer is Eric Bolstridge. Our theme song is by Amy Olsner and Justin Vollmer. We have additional music from the artists at Universal Production Music. Special thanks this week to Mahana Dalshaki. All right, time for some found sound. 
That was 1 a.m. on a hot summer night. It was recorded by Patsy Ron in Bloomington. Thanks, Patsy, for sending it in. Until next week, I'm Alex Chambers. Thanks, as always, for listening. Thank you.